Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 490. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'm fighting with some side effects, sound issues here on the day show. I've got the dog behind us snoring and he'll not shift. And thunder and lightning going on, so if we can get through this show. And it's actually tripping out my computer as well, this thunder and lightning. So... Let's crack on and see what we've got. First up is the main fiction. We've got Cameron Hurley, N.U. N.U., narrated by Chloe Yates. Then, my God, it's a, it's a miracle. We have Fiction Crawler number 17 by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Now, folks, new to Starship Sober, I might think, well, Fiction, fiction Crawler 17. We've been going 32 years. He's only on number 17. But it is marvellous to have Matthew Sanborn Smith as well. And and I mentioned again the show, we've got all the links for the stories, what Matt's picked out there, so you can have a look at that. Can you hear the dog, man? Douglas. Shh, man. Right, so the main fiction, it is, like I say, Ennio Ennio by Cameron Hurley. Originally appeared in Lightspeed magazine. Cameron Hurley is the author of The Stars Are Legion and the essay collection The Geek Feminist Revolution as well as award-winning God's War Trilogy and the World Breaker Sagas. Hurley has won the Hugo Award, Kitschy Award, the Sydney J. Bonds Award for Best Newcomer. She's also a finalist for the Arthur C. K. Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Nebula Award and the Gemmell Morningstar Award. Her short fiction has appeared in Popular Science Magazine, Lightspeed Magazine and many anthology anthologies. Hurley has also written for The Atlantic Entertainment Weekly, The Village Voice, Bitch Magazine and Locust Manic Magazine. She posts regularly at CameronHurley.com. Like I say, this story is narrated by Chloe Yates. As well as narrating, Chloe Yates writes odd tales. She has written many short stories and some poetry for the British Fantasy Award winning independent press Fox Spirit Books and is currently working on bigger things for them. English born, she currently lives in the middle of Switzerland with a bearded paramour, Mr. Y, and their disapproving dog, Miss Morty. You can find her online and there's links there as well to Chloe Sites. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Enyo Enyo by Cameron Hurley, narrated by Chloe Yates. Enyo meditated at mealtimes within the internode, huffing liquor vapours from a dead comrade's shattered skull. 
This deep within the satellite, ostensibly safe beneath the puckered skin of the peridium, she went over the lists of the dead. She recited her own name first. Enyo's memory was a severed ocular sclera, leaking aqueous humour, slowly losing shape as the satellite she commanded spun back to the beginning. The cargo she carried was unknown to her, a vital piece of knowledge that had escaped the punctured flesh of her memory. She had named the ship after herself, Enyo Enyo, without any hint of irony. The idea that Enyo had any irony left was a riotous laugh, even without knowing the satellite's moniker, and her second, Reeb, amused himself often at her shattering attempt at humour. After the purging of every crew, Reeb came into Enyo's pulpy green quarters, his long face set in a black, graven expression she had come to call winter, for it came as often as she remembered that season in her childhood. Why don't we finish out this turn alone, he would say. We can manage the internode ourselves. Besides, they don't make engineers the way they did eight turns ago. There's the matter of the prisoner, she would say, and he would throw up his dark, scarred hands and sigh and say, yes, there's the prisoner. It was Enyo's duty, her vocation, her obsession, to tread down the tongue of the spiralling umbilicus from the internode to the holding pod rotation of the satellite, to tend to the prisoner. Each time she greeted the semblance of a body suspended in viscous green fluid with the same incurious mood she had seen justice wear in propaganda posters during the war. Some part of her wondered if the body would recognise it, if they could talk of those times. But who knew how many turns old it was? Who knew how many other wars it had seen? On a large enough scale, her war was nothing. A few million dead, a system destroyed. The body's eyes were always closed, its sex indeterminate, its face a morass of dark, thread-like tentacles and fleshy growths. Most sessions, she merely came down and unlocked the feed cabinet, filled a clean syringe with dark fluid and inserted it into the black fungal sucker fused to the transparent cell. Sometimes, when the body absorbed the fluid, it would writhe and twist, lost in the ecstasy of fulfilment. Enyo usually went straight back to the internode to recite her lists of dead after. But she had been known to linger, to sit at the flat, gurgling drive that kept her charge in permanent stasis. She had stopped wondering where the body had come from, or who it had been. Her interest was in pondering what it would become when they reached its destination. She lost track of time in these intimate reveries, often. After half a rotation of contemplation, Reeb would do a sweep of the satellite. He would find her alive and intact, and perhaps he would go back to playing squeeze or fucking one of the engineers or concocting a vile hallucinogen with a gelatinous consistency of aloe. They were a pair of two, a crew of three, picking up rim trash and mutilated memories in the seams between the stars during the long night of their orbit around the galactic core. When they neared the scrap belt called Style, 
Enyo was mildly surprised to see the collection of spinning habited asteroids virtually unchanged from the term before. It's time, she told Reed. Without more fuel, we won't make it the full turn, and she would not be able to drop off the prisoner. He gave her his winter look. She had left the last of his engineers on a paltry rock the colour of foam some time before. He did not know why they needed the crew now. He did not have her sense of things, of the way time moved here. But he would be lonely. It's why he always agreed to take on another crew, even knowing their fate. How many more, he said. This is the last turn, she said. Then we are finished. She let Reed pick the new crew. He launched a self-propelled spore from the outer node well ahead of their arrival on the outskirts of Style. The dusty ring of settlements within the asteroid belt circled a bloated, dying star. Had it been dying the last time they passed? Enyo could not remember. Reed's sister worked among the debris, digging through old spores and satellites, piecing together their innards, selling them as pirated vessels imbued with the spirit of cheap colonial grit. Enyo had not seen Reeb's sister in many turns, when speaking of the war of genocide in terms outside the propagandic was still new and unsettling and got them thrown out of establishments. Brood breeders and creep cleaners called them void people, diseased, marked for a dry asphyxiation aboard a viral satellite, drifting ever aimless across limitless space. They were not far wrong. Sometimes Enyo wondered if they really knew who she was. She heard Reeb's sister slide up the umbilicus into the internode, heard her hesitate on the threshold, the lubrication of the umbilicus slick on her skin. This your satellite? Reeb's sister asked. Enya had expected to feel nothing at her voice, but like the body in the tank, she was sometimes surprised at what was fed to her. Something in her flared and darkened and died. It was this snapshot of Reeb's sister that she always hoped was the true one, the real one. But she knew better. She swivelled. Reeb's sister did not take up the tubal port as Reeb did, but inhabited it in the loose way the woman inhabited all spaces, wrapping it around herself like a shroud, blurring the edges of her surrounds, or perhaps Enyo's eyes were simply going bad again. The satellite changed them out every quarter turn. The woman had once had the body of a dancer, but like all of them she had atrophied and, though she was naturally thin, it was a thinness born of hunger and muscle loss. Her eyes were black as Reeb's, but their colour was the only feature they shared. She was violet black to Reeb's tawny brown, slight in the hips and shoulders, delicate in the wrists and ankles, light enough, perhaps, to fly. Reeb says you need a sentient spore specialist, the woman said. Yes, we have one last pickup. I need you to aid in monitoring our spore for the drop. I'm afraid if you do not, the prisoner may escape. The prisoner? Enyo had forgotten. This woman had not met them yet. She did not know. Something inside of Enyo stirred, something dark and willfully forgotten, like a bad sexual encounter. Where are the others? Enyo asked. Aren't you going to ask my name? I already know it, Enyo said. The day Reeb's sister was born, Enyo had named her Dysnomia. She had cursed all three of them that day, and perhaps the universe too. 
one could never be quite certain. Nothing had ever been the same after that, because she could not go back, only around. The sound of the machines was deafening. Enyo stood ankle-deep in peridium salve and organic sludge. Ahead of her, Reeve was screaming, high-pitched squealing, like some broodmeat, but she could not see him. Then the siren started, a deep-seated, body-thumping wail that cut deep into her belly. Now we turn, she thought. This is a very old snapshot. Ahead of her, a few paces down the dripping corridor, Dax battered her small body against the ancient orbital entryway. Her tears mixed with sweat and grease and something far more dangerous, deceptive. Grey florets spiralled up the bare skin of her arms from wrist to elbow. Enyo raised the fist of her weapon and called the girl back. Don't go down there, not there. The colonists are this way. I'm not leaving them, Dax sobbed. Her white teeth looked brilliant in the darkness. What animal had she harvested them from? I know what you did. I know you started this. You set this all in motion. Enyo admitted that she had not expected it would be Dax who went back. Her memories were not always trustworthy. The satellite took a snapshot. Reeb's tastes were predictable in their disparity. He brought up his new crew to meet with Enyo in the internode. The first, a pale, freckled girl of a pilot whose yellow hair was startling in the ambient green glow of the dermal tissue of the room. Enyo could not remember the last time she'd seen yellow hair. The war, maybe. The girl carried no weapons, but her hands were lean and supple and reminded Enyo of Reeb's hands when he was in his sixties. Strong, deft, capable. Not what he was now, no, but what he would become. The other crew member was a mercenary, a tall, long-limbed woman as dark as the girl was light. Her head was shaved bald. She wore a silver circlet above her ears and half of her left ear was missing. She carried a charged weapon at either hip and a converted organic slaying stick across her back. She smelled of blood and metal. Do they have names? Enyo asked Reeb. Dax Alhamin, the little pilot said, holding out her hand. It was a rude affectation picked up by many of the young to touch when first meeting. They did not remember how the war had started, with a knit-infected warmonger who murdered superpod after superpod of colonists with a single kiss. Or perhaps they had simply forgotten. Enya was never sure what side of the curtain she was on. The satellite distorted the universe at its leisure, often at her expense. The other one, the mercenary, laughed at the open hand the girl proffered and said, I'm Arso Toll. I heard you have cargo that needs liberating. Dax pulled her hand back in. She was smiling broadly. Her teeth were too white to be real. Even if she was the twenty years she looked, no real person had teeth like that. Not even a rimworld god. Not even a warmonger. It's necessary, Enyo said. We need to get back to the beginning. The beginning? Dax said. Where did you come from? It doesn't matter where we came from, Reeve said, nor where we're going. That's not how a satellite like this works. I think I've heard of this satellite, Arso said. 
Some prototype from the soul system, isn't it? You're a long way from home. You were already old news when I was growing up. Enyo closed her eyes. She ran through her litany of dead. At the end, she added two new names. Arzo Tol and Dax Alamin. She opened her eyes. Let's tell them how it works, Reeb, she said. Enyo, Enyo makes her own fate, Reeb said. Her fate is ours too. We can alter that fate, but only if we act quickly. Enyo guides that fate. Now you're part of it. Arzo snorted. If that's so, you better hope this woman makes good decisions then, huh? Reeb shrugged. I gave up on hoping that many cycles ago. All that we are is sacrifice, Enyo's first squad captain told her. Sacrifice to our countries, to our children, to ourselves. Our futures. We cannot hope to aspire to be more than that. But what if I am more than that, Enyo said. Even then she was arrogant, too arrogant to let a slight go uncommented upon. Her squad captain smiled, a bitter rictus, shiny metal teeth embedded in a slick green jaw grown just for her. The skin grafting hadn't taken. Enyo suspected it was because the captain forgot the daily applications of salve. People would take her more seriously with a jaw like that. I know what you did, Enyo, her squad captain said. I know who you are. This is how we meet out justice on the Venta Vera arm to war criminals. The captain shot her. It was the first time Enyo died. As Enyo gazed up from the cold, slimy floor of the carrier, her blood steaming in the alien air, her captain leaned over her. The metal teeth clicked, close enough to kiss. The squad commander said, That is how much a body is worth. One makes no more difference than any other, even the body of the woman who started the war. As her life bled out, Enyo's heart stopped, but not before Enyo reached up and ate half her captain's spongy, artificial jaw. Enyo secured her comrade's skull in the gelid dampener beside her. All around her, the spore trembled and surged against its restraints. Reba created it just an hour before and clocked in the elliptical path it must take to get them to the rocky little exoplanet where the cargo waited. The spore was ravenous and anxious. Dysmonia already lay immersed at the far end of the spore. She looked terribly peaceful. Dax eased herself back into her own gelid dampener. Torso submerged, she remained sitting up a moment longer, cool eyes wide, and finally, for the first time, fearful. Whose skull is that? Dax asked. Enyo patted the dampener. Yours, she said. Dax snorted. You're so mad. Yes, Enyo said. Arzo pushed through the still slimy exterior of the spore and into the core where they sat. She spit a glob of the exterior mush onto the floor, which absorbed it hungrily. You sure there's no one on that rock? Arzo said. Just the abandoned colonists, Reed murmured from the internode. The vibrations tickled Enyo's ears. 
The tiny thread-like strands tucked in their ear canals were linked for as long as the living tissue could survive on their blood. It was simply bad timing on their part, Reeve said. The forming project that would have made Chuatara habitable was suspended when they were just a few rotations away. They were abandoned. No one to welcome them. No one but us, Enyo said, and patted the skull beside her. For a long moment she thought to eat it, but there would be time for that later. Filthy business, Arzo said. Enyo unloaded the green fist of her weapon from the guild compartment above her. It moulded itself neatly to her arm, a glittering green sheath of death. You have no idea, Enyo said. Enyo screamed and screamed, but the baby would not come. The rimwarder midwife she'd hired was young, prone to madness. The girl burst from the closet Enyo called home three hours into the birthing. Now Enyo lay in a bed soaked with her own perspiration and filth. The air was hot, humid. Above her screams she heard the distant sound of people working in the ventilation tube. So it was Enyo who took her own hand, who calmed her own nerves, who coached her own belaboured breath. Enyo. Just Enyo. Why was it always the same, every turn? Why was she always alone in this moment, but never others? She pushed. She screamed herself hoarse. Her body seemed to tear in two, somewhere far away in some other life, in some other snapshot. She was dimly aware of this moment, as if it were happening to some character in an opera. The death dealers banged on the door and then melted it open. They saw she was simply birthing a child alone. So they left her, sealed the room behind her. Like most rim filth, they hoped she would die there in childbed and spare them the trouble. They could come back and collect her dead flesh for resale later. Enyo grit her teeth and pushed. The baby came, one moment just Enyo, the next a squalling, writhing mass no more sentient in that moment than a programmable replicator, but hers nonetheless. A tawny brown child with her own black eyes. Reeb, she said. She reached toward him, her whole body trembled. The second child was smaller, too thin. This was the one she would give away, the one who would pay her way to the stars. This one she called Dysmonia. Enyo voided the body for delivery, capped all the tubes. A full turn about the galaxy in transit for a single delivery. A single body. Back to the beginning. How many times she had done this, she wasn't certain. The satellite Enyo, Enyo revealed nothing. Only told her when it was hungry and when it was time to station itself once again on its place of origin. She pushed the body's pod over and it floated beside her, light as a moth's wing. She placed her fingers on top of the pod and guided it down into the cargo bay. The body stirred gently. The interior of Enyo Enyo was mostly dark, motionless, not a sound. They were the last of the living on Enyo Enyo, this turn. They usually were. The satellite was hungry. Always so hungry, like the war. At the airlock, she stopped to bundle up. Stiff boots, gloves, 
Parker respirator. The air here was breathable, Enyo Enyo told her, but thin and toxic if exposed for long periods. She queued up the first phase of the release and waited for pressurisation. The vibrating door became transparent, blistering white light pushed away the darkness of the interior. Ahead of her, a snow-swept platform. In the distance, a cavernous ruin of a mountain pockmarked with old munition scars. A sea of frozen fog stretched from the platform to the mountain. As she watched, a thin, webbed bridge materialised between the mountain and the platform. She waited. She had waited a full turn around the galaxy to come back here, to Eris. She could wait a couple terrestrial turns more. The moisture of her breath began to freeze on the outer edges of her respirator. It reminded her of the first time she had come here to Eris. Bodies littered the field, and Enyo moved among them, cloaked in clouds of blood rain. The nits she had infected herself with collected the blood spilled around her and created a shimmering vortex of effluvia that, in turn, devoured all it touched. You mustn't fight her, the field commander shrieked, and Enyo knew some of the fear came from the waves of methane melting all around them as the frozen surface of Eris convulsed. You mustn't stop her. She is small now. You must leave her alone and she will stay small. If you fight her, she will swell in size and grow large. She will be unstoppable. But they fought her. They always fought her. When she took the field, she flayed them of their fleshy spray-on suits and left them to freeze solid before they could asphyxiate, flailing in sublime methane. There had to be sacrifices. As she stood over the field commander, making long rents in her suit, the commander said, If it's a war your people want, it's a war they'll get. When it was over... Enyo gazed up at the thorny silhouette of the colonial superpod that the squad had tried to protect. Most of the sole colonists started from here, on Eris. She would need the superpod later, or she could never be here now. Sometimes one had to start a war, just to survive to the next turn. Enyo crawled up into the sickening tissue of the superpod. She found the cortex without much trouble. The complicated bits of genetic code that went into programming the superpod should have been beyond her, but she had ingested coordinates from her squad commander's jaw during some long-distance snapshot of her life that the satellite had created. Now the coordinates were a part of her, like her fingernails or eyelashes. She kissed the cortex and programmed the ship's destination. Chuatara. Reeb worked on one of the harvester ships that circled the rim every four cycles. Enya was 20 and he was 82, he said. He said he had met her before. She said she didn't remember, but that was a lie. What she wanted to say was, I remember giving birth to you, but that too was a lie. The difference between memory and premonition depended largely on where one was standing. At 20, on the Mushtamura arm... Her memories were merely ghosts, visions, brain effluvia. When she fucked Reeb in her twenty-year-old skin, it was with the urgency of a woman who understood time, understood that there was never enough of it, understood that this moment now was all of it, the end 
and the beginning, distorted. She said his name when she came, said his name and wept for some nameless reason, some premonition, some memory. Wept for what it all had been and what would become. The satellite is a prototype, the recruiter said. The emblem on her uniform looked familiar, a double red circle shot through with a blue dart. They walked along a broad, transparent corridor that gave them a sweeping view of the marbled surface of Eris. Centuries of sculpting had done little to improve its features, though the burning brand in the sky that had once been its moon, Dismonia, made the surface a bearable minus 20 degrees Celsius during what passed for summer, and unaided breathing was often possible, if not always recommended. The methane seas had long since been tapped, leaving behind a stark, mottled surface of rocky protuberances shot through with the heads of methane wells. Beyond the dome spokes of the research hub's many arms, the only living thing out there was the hulking mop of the satellite. Enyo thought it looked like a spiky, pulsing crustacean. A prototype of what, exactly, she asked. Her debriefing on Io had been remarkably brief. There's much to know about it, the recruiter said. We won't send you out until you've bonded with it, of course. That's our worry, that it won't take, but there is an indication that you and the satellite are genetically and temperamentally matched. It's quite fortunate. Enya wasn't sure she believed in fortune or coincidence, but the job paid well, and it was only a matter of time before people found out who she was. The satellite offered escape, redemption. Sure, but what is it? A self-repairing and self-replicating, if need be, vehicle for exploring the galactic rim. It will take snapshots, exact replicas, of specified quadrants as you pass and store them aboard for future generations to act out. Most of that is automated, but it will need a companion. We have had some unfortunate incidents of madness when constructs like these are cast off alone. It's been grown from, well, from some of the most interesting organic specimens we've found in our exploration of the near systems. It's alien, then. Partially. Some of it's terrestrial. Just enough of it. It's illegal to go mixing alien stuff with owls, isn't it? The recruiter smiled. Not on Eris. Why Eris? Why not Sedna or a neighbouring system? The concentrated methane that will give you much of your initial inertia comes from Eris. The edge of the solar system is close enough for us to gain access to local system resources at a low cost, but far enough away to... Well, it's far enough away to keep the rest of the system safe. Safe from what? There's a danger, Enyo. A danger of what you could bring back, or perhaps what you could become. Enyo regarded the spiky satellite. You should have hired some tech head then. She was not afraid of the alien thing, not then, but the recruiter made her anxious. There was something very familiar about her teeth. You came highly recommended, the recruiter said. You mean I'm highly expendable? They came to the end of the long spoke and stepped into the transparent bubble of the airlock that sat outside the pulsing satellite. 
The war is over, the recruiter said, but there were many casualties. We make do with what we have. It's breathing, isn't it? Enyo said. Methane, mostly, the recruiter said. And out there? It goes into hibernation. It will need less. But our initial probes along the galactic rim have indicated that methane is as abundant there as here. We'll go into more detail on the mechanics of its care and feeding. Feeding, Enyo said. Oh yes, the recruiter said. She pressed her dark hand to the transparent screen. Her eyes were big, the pupils too large, like all the techs who had grown up on Eris. You'll need to feed it, at least a few hundred kilos of organic matter a turn. Enyo gazed up at the hulk of the thing. And where exactly am I going to get organic matter as we orbit the far arms of the galaxy? I'm sure you'll think of something, the recruiter said. She withdrew her hand and flashed her teeth again. We chose you because we knew you could make those kinds of decisions without regret, the way you did during the war, and long before it. Enyo sliced open the slick surface of the superpod with her weapon. There was no rush of Chitara in it, atmosphere, no crumpling or wrinkling about the wound. No, the Peridium had already been breached somewhere else. Arzo and Dax hung back, bickering over some slight. Enyo wondered if they had known one another before Reed picked them up. They had, hadn't they? The way she had known Arzo, the snapshot of Arzo, some other life, some other decision. Inside, the superpod's bioluminescent tubal corridors still glowed a faint blue-green, just enough light for Enyo to avoid stepping on the wizened body of some unfortunate maintenance officer. Don't you need direction? Reed tickled her ear, but she already knew where the colonists were. She knew because she had placed them there herself, turns and turns ago. Enyo crawled up through the sticky corridors, cutting through pressurised areas of the superpod, going around others. Finally, she reached the coded spiral of the safe room that held the colonist. She gestured to Arzo. Open it, she said. Arzo snorted. It's a coded door. Yes, it's coded for you. Open it. I, I don't understand. It's why you're here. Open it. I, Enyo lifted her weapon. Should Enyo make you? Arzo held up her hands. Fine, no harm. Fucking dizzy core you've got, woman. Arzo placed her hand against the slimy doorway. The coating on the door fused with her spray-on suit. Pressurised. Enyo heard the soft intake of Arzo's breath as the outer seal of the safe room tasted her blood. The door went transparent. Arzo yanked away her hand. Enyo walked through the transparent film and into the pressurised safe room. Ring after ring of personal pods lie in the room, suffused in a blue glow. Hundreds? Thousands. She glanced back at Dax. Both she and Arzo were surveying the cargo. Dax's little mouth was open. Enyo realised who she reminded her of then. The recruiter. The one with the teeth. Enyo shot them both. They died quickly, without comment. Then she walked to the first pod she saw. She tore away the head of her own suit and tossed it to the floor. She peered into the colonist's puckered face and she thought of the prisoner.
Enyo bit the umbilicus that linked the pod to the main life system, the same core system responsible for renewing and replenishing the fluids that sustain these hibernating bodies. The virus in her saliva infected the umbilicus. In a few hours, everything in here would be liquid jelly, easily digestible for a satellite seeking to make its last turn. As Reeb cursed in her ear, she walked the long line of pods back and back and back until she found two familiar names, Arzo Toll, Dax Alamin. Their pods were side by side, their faces perfectly pinched. Dax looked younger, and perhaps she was in this snapshot. Arzo was still formidable. Enyo pressed her fingers to the transparent face of the pod. She wanted to kiss them, but they would be dead of her kiss soon enough. Dead for a second time, or perhaps a fifth, a fiftieth, a five hundredth. She didn't know. She didn't want to know. It's why she piloted Enyo Enyo. The woman waiting on the other side of the icy bridge was not one Enyo recognised, which did not happen often. As she guided the prisoner's pod to the woman's feet, she wondered how long it had been this turn, how long since the last. What do you have for us? the woman asked. Eris is very different, Enyo said. The woman turned her soft brown face to the sky and frowned. I suppose it must seem that way to you. It's been like this for centuries. No more methane? Those wells went dry five hundred years ago. The woman knit her brows. You were around this way long before that happened. You must remember Eris like this. Was I? I must have forgotten. So what is it this time, the woman said. We're siphoning off the satellite snapshots now. I brought you the prisoner, Enyu said. What prisoner? The prisoner, Enyo said, because as she patted the prisoner's pod, something in her memory ruptured. There was something important she knew. The prisoner who started the war. What war, the woman said. The war. Enyo said. The woman wiped away the snow on the face of the pod and frowned. Is this some kind of joke, she said. I brought her back, Enyo said. The woman jabbed Enyo in the chest. Get back in the fucking satellite, she said, and do your fucking job. Back to the beginning. Around and around. Enyo wasn't sure how it happened the first time, she was standing outside the escape pod, a bulbous, nasty little thing that made up the core of the internode. It seemed an odd place for it. Why put the escape pod at the centre of the satellite? But that's where the thing decided to grow it, and so that's where it was. She stood there as the satellite took its first snapshot of the quadrant they moved through, and something shifted. Some core part of her. That's when the memories started, the memories of the other pieces, the snapshots. That's when she realised what Enyo Enyo really was. Enyo stepped up into the escape pod. She sealed it shut. Her breathing was heavy. She closed her eyes. She had to go home now, before it broke her into more pieces, before it reminded her of what she was. War criminal. Flesh dealer. Monster. As she sealed the escape pod and began drowning in life-sustaining fluid, she realised it was not meant for her escape. 
Enyo Enyo had placed it there for another purpose. The satellite took a snapshot, and there, on the other side of the fluid-filled pod, she saw her own face. The squalling children were imperfect, like Enyo. She had already sold Reed to some infertile young diplomatic aides broker in the flesh pits for a paltry sum. It was not enough to get her off the shit asteroid at the arse end of the Mushtamura arm. She would die out here of some green plague, some white dust contagion. The death dealers would string her up and sell her parts. She'd be nothing. All this pain and anguish for nothing. Later, she could not recall how she found the place. Whispered rumours, a mangled transmission. She found herself walking into a chemically scrubbed medical office, like some place you'd go to have an industrial park grafted on for growing. The logo on the spiral of the door and the coats of the staff was a double circle shot through with a blue dart. I heard you're not looking for eggs or embryos, she said, and set Dismonia's swaddled little body on the counter. The receptionist smiled. White. White teeth. He blinked, and a woman came up from the back. She was a tall, brown-skinned woman with large hands and a grim face. I'm Arzo Tull, the woman said. Let's have a look. They paid Enya enough to leave not just the asteroid, but the Mushtamura arm entirely. She fled with a hot bundle of currency instead of a squalling, temperamental child. When she entered the armed forces outside the solar system, she did so because it was the furthest arm of the galaxy from her own. When a neighbouring system paid her to start a war, she did so gladly. She did not expect to see or hear from the butchers again. Not until she saw the logo on the satellite recruiter's uniform. Enyo ate her fill of the jellified colonist and slogged back to the satellite to feed it, to feed Enyo Enyo. Reeb's annoying voice had grown silent. He always stopped protesting after the first dozen. She found him sitting in the internode with the prisoner, his hands pressed against the base of the pod. His head was lowered. It was enough to make the next turn, Enyo said. It always is, he said. There will be other crews, she said. I know. Then why are you melancholy? If she could see his face, it would be winter. He raised his head stared at the semblance of a body floating in the viscous fluid. I'm not really here, am I? This turn? I don't know. Sometimes you are, sometimes you aren't. It depends on how many snapshots Enyo Enyo has taken this turn and how she wants it all to turn out this time. When did you put yourself in here? He patted the prisoner's pod. When things got too complicated to bear, she said when I realised who Enyo Enyo was. She went to the slick feeding console. She vomited the condensed protein stew of the colonists into the receptacle. When it was over, she fell back, exhausted. Let's play scree, she said, before the next snapshot. We might be different people then. We can only hope, Reeb said, and pulled his hand away from the prisoner. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Cameron's. Cameron, thank you so much. So it is always a remarkable, <laughs> it's a miracle. 
We get a fiction crawler off, Mr. Matthew Sambo-Smith, but he just gives us cast an eye over the short stories out there, and it's lovely to have Matt back on the show. Matthew. Hello, my hedonistic sofa loafers. I am your prodigal son-in-law, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, and this is the semiest of regular Starship sofa segments, The Fiction Crawler. This is the part where I find great free online stories and turn you on to them like the older next-door neighbor kid who owned all the cool albums. First up is Three Voices by Lisa Bolekaja, which you can find at UncannyMagazine.com. If you've got a story about music that can make me feel like I'm listening to music when I'm not listening to music, then you've probably got me hooked. Three Voices is one of those jobbies. I mean, I seek out science fiction and fantasy and general weirdness, almost to the exclusion of everything else, but if Bolekaja had decided to keep this one in the realm of the realistic, I would have been just fine. The characters and the writing picked me up, and I was down for the ride. At this point, you probably want to know what it's about, but I can't can't tell you, and that's because I haven't read it. No, that's not true at all. Andre Irving is a composer with something for someone to say, but no someone to say that something, until he meets a phenomenal singer named Chocolate Ty. Ty can move an audience to tears and do things with her voice that people can't believe can be done. This is right in Andre's pocket, because he might have a song that can't be sung, a finished but later unfinished work by his father, who also left that fatherhood unfinished. The work, called Three Voices, has become the cornerstone of Andre's obsessive world. Ty is up for the challenge, but while trying to master the ridiculously demanding vocal parts, she seems to be losing the juice that makes her her. And then she learns what its previous singers have lost. We pay a price for anything we want in life. Sometimes the buyer's remorse hits us while we're still counting out the money. Reading Three Voices begins as an enjoyable car ride with the stereo grooving to the rhythm of the passing mailboxes, but that speedometer needle keeps inching clockwise and the reader's increasing sweat suggests they brace for impact before the last unpredictable swerve. Eugene Fisher's story, The New Mother, was originally printed in Asimov's, but you can read it online at medium.com. You're about to get an idea why it won the James Tiptree Jr. Award in 2015, and if I gave out an award, it would have won that one too, even if my award was for Best Local Restaurant. The New Mother does one of those things I love a science fiction story to do. Fisher comes up with a premise that's packed with potential, and then he unfolds the consequences of that premise, asking far more questions than the story can answer, or should answer. Imagine a sexually transmitted disease that causes human sperm and eggs to have two sets of chromosomes rather than the usual one. This means that men are rendered sterile, and women produce fertile eggs every time they ovulate. So women with the disease could give birth to their own clone once a year or less for the entirety of their egg-making lives. If you want to upend the patriarchy and throw modern society into chaos, this is an excellent way to do it. The New Mother follows Tess, a reporter who's writing a story about an infected woman whose church sterilized her four daughters. And Tess may have a larger stake in the changes to come than she wants, as she herself is pregnant by sperm from an unknown donor. Through Tess's work, Fisher circles the societal implications of such a disease using the lenses of religion, science, medicine, politics, and lots of mothers in a variety of circumstances. His talk show archetypes flip their opinions on abortion, rape, women's rights, paternity, and the definition of what a human being is in order to fit a history-making change into their worldview while pretending as hard as they can that they're remaining consistent. For all the hard issue hitting, there are plenty of touching moments, especially the scenes of Tess with her partner Judy. Fisher writes about real people living real lives. His details aren't slaves to the theme, but are there to serve the humanity of the work. Besides her large body of articles at Tor.com, Mari Ness is probably best known for her sophisticated takes on classic fairy tales. Deathlight, which you'll find at lightspeedmagazine.com, is a rare departure into science fiction, which I hope she'll revisit in the future. Although her telling is thoroughly modern, the story has a tasty trippiness which brings to mind memories of science fiction past stretching back to the new wave. 
Els and her partner Dunn are attempting to pass through a nebula as a shortcut home because their ship is so low on fuel, a shortcut might not help a bit. Life support systems are kept at a minimum and they spend their days freezing under piles of blankets and using as little power as possible, letting their suits keep them from hypothermia. Then they find an object during their travels which cannot be natural. It could be the thing that makes them rich if they survive long enough to haul it home. Each new discovery within that object changes the playing field they think they're on, and all the while, Elle seems to be hallucinating and losing ever-increasing chunks of time. Maybe it's affecting her judgment. But hey, if you're gonna die anyway... I've confessed to Mari that I have a talent for not understanding some of her work. I thought this foray into science fiction was my key in, because I understood everything the first time I read it. But with each successive reading, I understood less. When I was a kid, I was convinced I was very smart. Good grades will mislead you like that. Now that I'm middle-aged, I realize I'm kind of dumb. But I also see that understanding is only one aspect of the human experience. Filling your mental landscape shift beneath you by staring at dark marks on white light can be its own reward. Maybe it's affecting my judgment. But hey, if I'm gonna die anyway... What would a fiction crawler be without a visit to Strange Horizons? Well, this one would be a fiction crawler without Lara Elena Donnelly's story, Chopin's Eyes, and that would be a crime. Donnelly is on a mission to bring a new romanticism back into the world, topped with a drizzle of decadence, and you feel that in her work. Her paragraphs, like her settings, are rich enough that even if I only had an excerpt of this story to point you toward, I would find myself compelled to do so. Chopin's Eyes tells the story of a love triangle between Frédéric Chopin, Georges Sand, and Frédéric Chopin. Or more precisely, the passion that inhabits his tortured body. It's that passion which comes to him through the performance of his music and leaves him by the way of sweet, sweet lovin' that is also killing him. Sacrificing one's life for one's art is an old story, but Donnelly personifies that struggle with a creature hungry to experience the world and pushing outward to get there against a young body made old before its time. The tragedy of her Chopin is that he can't engage the ecstasy of his art firsthand. His lover, however, engages thoroughly, and her fight is to enjoy the willing spirit for as long as possible without killing the weak flesh. Though the reader may have an easy time choosing sides in this dark little drama, Donnelly's brilliant closing paragraph makes one question one's allegiance, especially in the dimming light of centuries past. As of late, a most disturbing life cycle has played itself out in one corner of speculative fiction's internet realm. Once a year, Lightspeed Magazine gives birth to its own mother magazine, Fantasy, for a special event issue before subsuming it once again at the end of a Groundhog Day of binary fission that nature will never allow to take hold. By that, I of course mean, go read Austin Bunn's weighty tale, Ledge, in the 2015 iteration known as Queers Destroy Fantasy at fantasy-magazine.com. I don't expect you to follow what I just said, that's why there are links in the show notes. In the Age of Exploration, an Andalusian sailor tells all about the crazy crap he's seen at sea, with the sole purpose of preparing us for the craziest thing of all. In search of a western trade route to India, he and his shipmates hit the ultimate hurdle, the edge of the world. Having a bit of trouble sailing away and slowly being drawn into an unwanted experiment in kinetic energy by way of an oceanic waterfall, the captain decides to lead a party over the edge with a small boat and a lot of rope. Now that's an explorer. Our protagonist is terrified, but seeing what's over the horizon, no matter how close it's become, is something he's been doing his entire life. Whether it's discovering his sexuality in adolescence, back then known as adulthood, or leaving his beloved mother in city to explore what the wider world has to offer. The author ties his story to the men on that ship and the lives they've left behind, and he conveys the wonders they deal with almost casually. And they do find wonders. A way mistakes can be partially erased. A way conversations once cut short can be continued. And the men are driven ultimately not by fear, but by love, which will lead to a most unexpected conclusion. As it might in your own life. 
I love it when commercial art realizes it's more art than commercial and colors so outside of the lines that you have to do the laundry to deal with the aftermath. Such is the case with Camilla Grudova's The Sad Tale of the Sconce, which was recommended to me by my friend Helen, who in this instance was my next-door neighbor kid with all the cool albums. The story is from Grudova's collection The Doll's Alphabet, which has been published in Britain but not the U.S., but come on, my fellow Americans, it's 2017, you can track down whatever you really want. I mean, with only a little bit of effort, you can get yourself some heroin for Pete's sake, so no griping on this one. With even less effort, you can find this story over at 1111journal.com. Spell out those 11s. And if you're a fan of the surreal, I encourage you to root around in their magazine for a variety of wonderful things. We're back at sea at the beginning of this tale, on an old-timey fishing boat. I don't think I've ever quoted a line from a story I've recommended on Fiction Crawler, but take this in from the second paragraph. The catch was a multitude of colors and textures, like the thigh of an old debauched prince squished into a stocking. Once I read that, I was up for whatever the author wanted to do to me. The titular sconce is the product of a sexual liaison between an octopus and the mermaid figurehead of the boat that netted it. Once born, the sconce goes on a series of some of the most boring adventures ever set down in literature, but Grudova guides us through the mundanity as if we were viewing the wonders of a palace in ancient Byzantium, with a fondness for unsavory elements, unconventional expressions of emotional warmth, and a small stack of finger-related footnotes. The story enveloped me in room after junk shop room of weird humanizing details that give it more life than anyone should be able to pack into a few thousand words. It's a twisting ride in a carnival that should have been condemned in 1932. This story simply must be read. Well, I'm spent. Links to all of these magnificent works of prose are in the show notes. Discover all the non-physical ways I can delight you at MatthewSanbornSmith.com. Full disclosure, there are no physical ways I can delight you. If you'd like to hear fiction crawlers more often or experience more of anything else by this man who writes with the passion and freedom of an unfettered stallion as well as with one large hoof which strikes 12 keys at once, join the mission to squeeze more work out of me at patreon.com slash matthewsanbornsmith. Once you get to know me, you'll know that I like to say my name over and over. That's it for me until whenever next time is. Fill your life with art and be sure to make some yourself. For Fiction Crawler, this is Matthew Sanborn Smith saying Matthew Sanborn Smith. I'm... So sorry, I can't stop. Matthew Sanborn, sorry. Again, the story links there. You can go straight to them and grab them while you can. Matt, thank you so much. It's just lovely to get to. At one point, we had this giddy idea to do these monthly. (laughs) Now it's yearly. (laughs) Busy people. Matt, thank you so much. So that is Starship Sova's 490. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone who's taken part and put together this show. Until next week, just like you say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
get my say. I might already be on to you and on my way, but you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out. 